Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. You know, before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the rise of outlaw country music and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision in her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. Hey, I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the St. Jude kids. St. Jude's doing incredible work fighting childhood cancer. And because of donations, like the ones that you get, families never receive a bill ever from St. Jude for treatment, travel, housing, food, none of that. Help St. Jude stop childhood cancer. Become a partner in hope. Get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. It's going to look great on you. So join all the doctors, researchers, and me in this fight. All right, text the word Bobby. It's only six numbers to 785-833. Again, text the word Bobby to just these six numbers, 785-833. In every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit Tacova's.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. Welcome to episode 361, Famous Firsts. It's a good one. Got to shout out Mike D for putting this together. It's a really great episode. So it's, it's about famous firsts. And some of these artists that we'll hear from here had to make it as songwriters. You know, we'll talk about their famous first, maybe the songwriter. You know, these are a lot of the stories that we have gathered about their first number one songs. A lot of times they were struggling as an artist forever and finally got their first number one. It's just a lot of folks that you think probably have always been successful talking about how they haven't always been successful and how it was a grind and their first number one. So you'll hear stories behind number ones from Kelsey Ballerini, Dirk Bentley, Luke Combs, Lady A, and a whole bunch more. What was your first number one? I'm glad you asked. You're talking about what, in music? In music. Mm. Well, it's, it's kind of a controversial thing to ask me since I'm not a real-life musician, but the Raging Idiots had a number one comedy album, mm-hmm. and we had a number one comedy song with Namaste back in 2017, and that was our first number one. First number one. That's it? Oh, you have it there. You already knew that. You knew yeah, you were setting yeah, me up, yeah. didn't you? <laughs> yeah, we've had a few, like, in these odd category number ones, a number one children's song, which we had with, when I grow up, 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 I could be, that one, whatever. Yeah. That was a number one song. But it's been pretty crazy. You? Any number ones ever? No, I never written a number one. Written a number, like a top five. Top five what? Comedy song. Oh, with me? Yeah, Chick-fil-A, but it's Sunday. Oh. It's like a number three? Yeah, it was number three. That is true. Maybe, you know what? Our new goal. But do they even categorize comedy? Yeah. I'll tell you what happened. On Spotify, they have pulled a bunch of comedy stuff for whatever reason. I don't know if it's a rights thing. But they pulled Namaste off Spotify for like a month because we had classified it as comedy. We had to go back and reclassify it as country. And it stayed up on all the other platforms except Spotify. Let me go check and see if it's there. But once we reclassified it, it popped back up. Namaste. Yeah, there was a royalty thing with people claiming their comedy stuff on there. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah, so they pulled a whole lot of that stuff. But there you go. All right, well, 
This is a really cool episode. Nice job on this. It should, this should be submitted for some sort of... An award? Yeah, and it'll be your first... There we go, my first, first podcast award. award. <laughs> All right, here we go. The Bobbycast, famous firsts. Let's get into the first one. Keith Urban, he talked about how he vividly remembers his first number one, but for the grace of God, because it came after years after struggles on his label. When you became Keith Urban, I'm going to roll through some number ones here. 2001, uh, your first number one, but for the grace of God. Let's hear a little bit of this. After the years of struggle on a label, to have a hit, did it feel like a relief or did it feel like this is amazing? Because there's a difference. Was Was it like, oh my God, thank you. Or was it like, whoa, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. It all the above. It was surreal. To have a number one song in America was just crazy. I remember that day like it was yesterday. Really? Oh, my god! 20 years ago, you still remember it like that, your first Vividly. one? Vividly, yeah. yeah. I remember exactly the house I was at, what I was doing, who told me, everything, like, detail, because it, it was too surreal. I was like, number one, like, the number one most played song on country radio in America. Truly? Really? Did your life change Is after it? that, after you had a number one? since you could say it um i felt like okay now we got a chance to get some more music going and um the next single after that i think was where the blacktop ends which is weird because it peaked at i was looking at numbers it wasn't a number one no but that to me is one of the songs i think of when i think of you and your catalog is where the blacktop ends right wasn't even number one no which shows you not all number ones are career songs, and not all career songs are number one songs. So true. Even in 2001, 2002. Mm-hmm. Did that song feel big like a number one song, Where the Black Top Ends? can't remember that. That know. one you can't remember? No, I can't remember that. I mean, I, I remember making that a whole album with uh, Matt Rawlings, and it was the first time where I was in a studio, and having gone through all of the famous producers mm-hmm. and realizing none of it works for me. It just, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, there was a guy running Capitol Records at the time called Pat Quigley. And he was the president. And I used every proper famous producer and none of it was working. And I went into to Pat and I said, can I just, I had just done a session with Matt Rawlings for somebody else. The two of us were playing on it. And I clicked with him and I really liked him a lot. And I said, could I just go and record some songs with this guy? Because I think he can put a good band together and we can just make a record that sounds good. And he went, yeah, whatever, just it was very much that case of like, go do whatever you want to do. We're not that interested. You could tell. Right. It was like, whatever. Going to... So we went and cut Up the Grace of God and like four or five songs. And I took him in and played for him. And he goes, that sounds good. And just finished the record out. It was no big deal. And we handed in the record. And it had It's a Love Thing and Want to Be Your Everything. All the singles that came out. Grace of God, Blacktop, all that stuff. Um, and they put out Love, It's a Love Thing. And I think I went to number 18 or something like no, it's okay. Pretty good. Uh, they put out another song, um, "Want to Be Your Everything," and I think it got to top five or close to it. And it wasn't. It was okay. Everything was okay. And then the label really focused on me, and they put out "Grace of God," and it did that. And I could feel everything change after that. Whenever somebody like you comes out, two thousand two. Here's a little clip. Yeah, 
you remember this one as vivid, your second number one? Yeah. You do, okay. Everything about it, recording it. First time I'd worked with Dan Huff. Um, working out at Sound Kitchen at Franklin and the, the, putting, the, putting the band together and the, the, set, the whole session, I remember it so vividly. Because it a guy, felt magical. Does a guy like Dan Huff challenge you? So uh, I was going to do the next record on my own, um, Golden Road. And I had already done six, six sides of that record, including Who Wouldn't Want Me. I put the band together. I chose the studio. I chose the engineer. I put it all together. And then someone said, you know, you should try and work with Dan Huff. And I went, no, I don't want to work with him because... And they went, well, he's a guitar player. I mean, I, I'm so not going to work with a guitar player who's going to tell me what to play. You know, I don't want that. I've been down this road before. And they're like, well, just give it a shot, you know. And I met with Dan... And this is a true story, and I, it really is a compliment to Dan. Met with Dan. I said, okay, I've got this one song. It's called Somebody Like You. That, that'd be a good one for us to start on. And I'd already been in the studio for two weeks with this band. We'd cut half the record. It was already done. And Dan says, okay, this song feels great. Um, I think we should use this drummer. And I got, already got the drummer. Well, I think we should use this bass. But I go, I got the whole band, Dan. I got the whole band. <laughs> All right, well, I like to work at this studio. I said, I'm already at the studio. We're going to be at Sound Kitchen. Okay, well, the engineer I like to use is, I already got the engineer. His name's Justin Ebank. And he goes, well, what do I do? And I go, you just show up. That's all you're going to do. Show up because I want to see what you do. I'm sick of these producers that say they're a producer, but really they have great engineer, great players. They don't do anything. I saw it again and again and again. And I'm like, just show up. What the hell can you possibly bring to this session? I want to see. And he walked into that session. I'd been with this band for two weeks. He walks in and I literally could feel all the musicianship go up a whole other level. Just with him being in the room. He sat in the room. The band's playing a bit of somebody like you. And he goes, hey, Chris, just change that snare a little bit there. Okay, yeah, uh, leave that bass part out right there. And you play that bit over there. And he, I watched him arrange this thing. And the whole track just elevated. And I'm like, well, damn, this guy's the real deal. He's so good. When did the town start to treat you differently? I, I, I was already getting support from the town very early on, I think because of all those writing sessions, you know. And when you write with people, word gets out, whether you can really sing, really play, whether you know about country music, if you're legit or just some poser, really. So I think those sort of guitar pull sessions at people's houses, going to the Bluebird, People knew I was, I was for real. Kelsey Ballerini talked about how she landed her first number one, Love Me Like You Mean It, back in 2014. She wasn't signed as an artist when she wrote this song, and it was even pitched to other artists before she recorded it. Uh, tell me about this here. So you talk about writing this song. Yeah. Uh, where are you? Tell me about the room. Who's in the room? This was such a random mistake song um, that wasn't a mistake. We had we were writing at Black River. I was writing with um, Josh Kerr that day. And um, Forrest was writing with a guy named Lance Carpenter that day. Um, and so we all get done with our rights. And we're like, hey, should we try to all write together? Like, we're all kind oh, of... Oh, so you wrote separately and then came together on this one? Yeah. Oh, wow. That was our second song of the day. And, um, yeah, so we got together and we ordered Soul Shine and we just kind of pizza pizza yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um and we kind of just posted up in like the the big lobby area of the label um the upstairs by the fireplace you know 
I do know, you but do I know. act like I don't. I'm you just, do I, listen, I'm just a question asker. Um, and so, yeah, and it was kind of no pressure and we were sitting there, we were catching up. We all, we didn't really get a lot of time together and, um, yeah, we were just talking, hanging out. And I think the first thing that came out, well, Forrest actually, who ended up producing my whole record, um, he's like my musical partner. He's just that person for me that I feel like is my better half and has really become that. And especially now even working on the next record is that even more so. But, um, he was like, Hey, we were listening to take a bow by Rihanna. I love pop music. And so we were listening to that song and he was like, I really feel like you should try to, to do like that swag that she does, how she kind of like laughs after she says a sassy line and all that stuff. And I was like, I just don't know if I can, pull that off you know i didn't know because i was i mean i was 19 at the time maybe and i don't know just insecure and awkward and um so he's like let's just try it and he started playing the da da ba da 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 on the guitar and and then we were all kind of like the if you're gonna if you're gonna we just loved that kind of melodic thing and um and then we literally just wrote it in like 30 minutes and uh, I don't think we really thought anything of it other than it was fun. But the moment for me that I remember was Forrest did a demo for it. Um, and Who sang the demo? I sang the demo. Okay. So he did like a basic track, like guitar, beat. I sang it like the next day. And then he did a demo for it, like built around my vocal and sent it to me. I mean, maybe a week and a half later. And I remember putting on my headphones, listening to this demo and being like, that's special. And I don't know why, cause it's not lyrically genius or anything, you know, but it's special to me. And, um, and the label felt the same way about it. So, and the, it got pitched around town too, which I didn't know till later. Oh, so they were trying to give the song to some other people. I didn't know that cause I wasn't signed yet. Yeah. And, um, Oh, so you weren't, okay, good. This is all putting it into, into a place. Now you weren't signed as an artist no, when you wrote this song. No, it's fair than they pitch it. Yeah. To you, it may not feel fair because you're writing so for upset, yourself. I was so upset because I was I like, guys, it. this is the first one. I get it. I completely... Yeah. But looking but at everyone it... Everyone thought it was way too pop. And I think... And this is a, a, kind of a weird place for you right now. And I, this is why I'm really anxious. And listen, I've heard some of your... You, you've sent me some stuff from your second album. Yeah. And I'm anxious for it to come out because it's going to paint a new you. I think so, too. Because what what's happened with you is you created this new niche in the format. And now a bit... I don't think it's. A, I don't think you're being penalized for it, but I think this is your one record, and it got so big that people only know you as the pop country girl. I know. So now, it's your goal. And this is just me talking, and it's your goal with the second record to show your depth. Do yeah. You, do you feel that? Yes, I think that. Just talking super honestly, like I think that this first record. It was really heavily embraced by radio, which was really epic. But I think in doing that, the industry... Absolutely. It made you not cool. It made it me really poppy. not yep. cool. And so it was awesome because I was like, radio's girl, which I love. And I mean, I did a 22-week radio tour. I mean, like... That means, for those that don't know, she's going to morning shows and radio stations at... It's five in the morning and singing and it's miserable and <laughs> it, it is and you're yes. dealing it's just and you're going city to city mm-hmm. little station to little station every single day yeah doing the same thing over and over and over and over again yeah and it and it it's it's paid off and it's been amazing and that relationship's been amazing but i think in in that happening how it did it made nashville kind of be like Meh. but what a place to be because you're right 
It, yeah. You put out this record and it, it it breaks records and sets new standards and here you are, you're all over the, all over TV, but you know how industry snooty can be. So to the industry, like the, you know, you're not that cool, but everybody in the world, you're the coolest thing ever. And it's a weird dynamic because it, you're blowing up. But then the people that are at home, you're like that you want to to like be like, oh, Kelsey, yeah. I'm so, you're like, oh, they don't think I'm cool because my songs sound poppy. Yep. It was a Is hu- that accurate? It's a huge insecurity of mine. Yeah. And and the thing for me, like my biggest goal right now, and like I'm in, in Nashville right now, like I have two and a half weeks to finish my record essentially. And I'm writing twice a day. I'm writing after this. I wrote this morning. Like I'm just like trying to drain myself of that because if anything, like I just want people to know I'm a songwriter on this next album. That's the most important thing to me. And what's funny is you are such a songwriter. You know, I mean, I used to no, play you I stuff all the time. in the car. And I know, and we would drive for hours and hours and hours yeah. and you would play songs. And you're very much a songwriter, but I, I saw it as it was happening and as you were I know. exploding. I saw you exploding in one way and becoming industry less cool at the same time. Know, and it's it such so a weird, weird anomaly. It's, it's so weird. Like the bigger you got, but you screw them. Because I'm going to tell you in a sort of way that that's happened to me too. Where it's like, you know what? I'm just going to be me. Yeah. And that's really all you can be. It's, yes. It's Carrie, Carrie her Kalia line. This sounds so lame, but her trademark or whatever is stay the path, stay your path. And I'm like, I always have to tell myself that because I'm always comparing myself. You're the next, you're the first of the next wave. And that's, it's pressure too. It's a lot of pressure too because you have to put out a second record and a next record that ha- you really do. It's a lot of pressure. I know. But the good thing for you is you also, you create your content. Mm. You're not just out picking. No. And and that's a and that's a different skill set in itself, but you write. Yeah. And a lot of people don't. Yeah. So you can actually create your own path, which even if you lose, if you're creating your own path, I will go down. At with least my ship you happily. lose. At least you lose by creating. Dude, yes. You don't have to get in someone else's boat and sink. You get to build your own boat and sink. Absolutely. And there's so much more into that than than it is just absolutely falling with it. So, uh, love me comes out. Yeah. Let me comes out. Wonderful song. Who picks it, by the way? Like when it, it was across the board. We just knew. We we had a meeting just I think for the sake of having a meeting, um, and uh, we all sat around and I don't even know if I had management at the time. I don't think I had management yet. You didn't because your management. I, I remember meeting your, your now manager in St. Louis when he came to one of our Fletcher, shows. Yes, yeah. you're right. You're right. So yeah. I didn't have management yet. It was just me and my label. And we which all... Is, which is not a good place to be, by the way. I've it's learned. not. You want to always have someone there. But again, you pick a good song, good to go. Yeah. And so we listened to three songs. We had a song called Looking at Stars the first time and uh, Love Me. And listened to all three. And then we all went around the table and voted. And everyone said Love Me. And, and then I guess they already knew that that was going to happen. So then we they had all these like cool bracelets made that said Love Me Like You Mean and on them. It was a cool moment. Yeah. Luke Combs got his first number one in 2016 with Hurricane. He told us the story behind that song and how it led to a string of six more that followed. We get into the stories of each one here. Walk through these number ones and just give me a couple sentences about what they, like when you hear them back, like what was happening around the time that either you wrote it or number one, like what story? We'll start start with Hurricane. Here you go. Here's this. When this plays, what are you thinking? When that plays, I mean, it just is a flood of, like, things were just really happening. 
at that time, you know, and and that song was around for you know in my life at that time a, a long time. You know, it had been out for you know by the time it went number one, it had been out for two years, uh, and so I played that song in a lot of clubs, and and I just could I re, I can just feel the like the momentum when you play that song because it's. I, you know, I owe kind of everything to that song. You know, I, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you if it wasn't for that moment in time. You know, and I just remember, you know, playing all these shows and and man, we we're selling everything out, and people were all these important, you know, business people were coming out, and we want to see the show, and we want to talk to you about this, and and just excitement, I guess, would be the word that I think of when that song comes to mind. All right, number two here is your second one, uh, One Number Away. I'm one number away from calling you. I said I was through, but I'm done. What do you feel with, with that one? That's just different. You know, it, it was it was the most different thing that I had done at that time, especially when we wrote it. You know, I had never written to a track before, didn't know what that was. Um, and it was just, it was, it was cool, man. It was kind of like, I was like, man, this thing is just so cool. It's such a risk for me. I, th- I felt at that time to put out, you know, and so, I mean, luckily it worked out. But that one is is definitely I would like risky. I think is how I, I would felt I felt about that one. When it rains, it pours. Yeah, man. I mean, just. I mean, I just think that's probably my. It just makes me happy when I hear that song, man. You know, I remember shooting the video and and. Um, in Charleston, and and uh, you know, I, me and my uh, you know now fiance had had just really got into the throes of our relationship at that time, and it was just really fun. That was just a really fun time for me, you know. And that song brings back a lot of of really cool, fun memories for me. All right, number four here. She got the best of me. She got the best of me. <laughs> what? Why'd you laugh right there? What? What happened up there? Just. I, just, I mean, it's just, that's full, it's like full circle is the word I would use. Because I wrote that song in college. Um, I, I wrote it here in Nashville, but it was on one of my trips. And it just, the way it all came together was, uh, I, you know, I wrote it with Rob Snyder and Channing Wilson. Uh, at that time, they were both, uh, you know, doing the revival thing together uh, at Tin Roof. And um, a buddy of mine that I went to Nashville with had, you know, kind of walked up to those guys and was like, hey, let's write a song thing. And. And so they were like, sure, man, you know, we're only in town for a couple of days. And they're like, oh, well, we can write tomorrow or whatever. Me and my buddy got just super drunk that night at the Tin Roof. And, and you know, we played Revival that night. And uh, and so he called me in the morning and was like, hey, man, like, I'm too hungover to go to this right. Will you go instead? And I was like, sure, man, like, I'll go right with these, you know, two complete stranger guys, you know. And so I went over to Rob's apartment. Me and Rob were kind of sitting there writing. And this, I mean, Rob and Channing are both like big dudes. They're both taller than me. They're both even broader than I am. And and Channing walks out in this like bath towel. You know, he's got his long hair and his big beard and everything. And Rob was like, dude, come come get on this song with us, man. Why don't you come write this song with us? And he was like, man, I'm not feeling it, you know. And he said, well, play. <clears throat> he said, dude, just, just play him something. So I played Night Moves on my guitar by Seeger. And he was like, yeah, I'll come right with you guys. <laughs> and then so we wrote, we wrote She Got the Best of Me that day. Uh, and I ended up recording it uh, in college when I was still in college. 
putting it out. And then when it came time to record the deluxe version of the album, you know, Lynn was like, this song's just great. And your fans love it at the shows. And, and I really think it deserves a chance to, you know, to be recorded with the proper equipment and the proper band and, and get a shot at being a single. And so yeah, it was definitely a full circle experience for that one. Uh, beautiful, crazy. I mean, definitely my fiance comes to mind more than anything. Um, and that song really just changed a lot for me. I mean, it was seven week number one, which is crazy. I would have never imagined that. That, that, to you, that song to me put you on a whole different. Like, it, yeah. it's you have to have a massive song to actually make the jump. You yeah. can have 11 number ones, and sometimes you don't make the jump. Yeah. But if you get that one definer, yep. you can make a jump. I think yeah. for you, that's when it, it launched you yeah. up. And that's what I was thinking is this is the one that took us from like, I mean, we had four number ones and things were awesome. And then it was all of a sudden it was like next. It was the next gear after that song, you know. And, you know, I think of obviously winning song of the year uh, here recently and, you know, all the accolades and, 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 and things. There, there's so many really positive, uh, you know, memories. I mean, I wouldn't be, you know, I probably, I mean, I would like to think I would still be with my fiance without that song. But, I mean, this is the song that I played for her. You know, after we weren't even officially dating yet when I wrote this song about her. And I remember playing it for her like two days after I wrote it. And I was like so nervous. Oh, that's like, vulnerable right there. Yeah, because I was like, man, what if she thinks I'm just a total creep? Like, you know, because it was like, I mean, we're hanging out. We were hanging out a good amount at that time. But it was still like, man, it was such a risk in my mind, like to play her that. What did she do? She was working at BMI. No, what did she do when you played the song? Did she oh. get emotional or did she? Well, I, I played it smart because her one of her friends was there. And so I had actually bought her a record player as a gift, like a Crosley record player with like the legs yeah. and the, like its own little speaker and stuff. And so I, it had an aux cord jack and I plugged my phone in and played the work tape. And her friend was in there, and her friend was like, oh, my God, like, this is just, wow, you know? And so I was like, I know if I can, like, hook the friend, and the friend thinks it's sweet, she at least has to pretend like she likes it so that I'm not in this awkward situation where we're both like, well, we'll just stop hanging out now because you think <laughs> I'm super weird. So it was, it, <laughs> she, but no, she loved it. And, I mean, she obviously loves that tune. All right, Beer Never Broke My Heart. Long I can just feel the live show on that one. Um, screaming it back? Yeah. I mean, it's just like, it just feels like, you know, it just, I feel like I can imagine what the environment would have been like at an ACDC concert. You know, like, and not that that song sounds anything like an ACDC song, but it's the most rocking thing that we have. You know, it has those heavy, like, chugging guitars and, and just, it just feels like an arena rock, like anthem song. And that's what it feels like every time we play it. And I think that song, you know, if Beautiful Crazy was important, I think beer is just as important. Because we followed Beautiful Crazy up, which was this very vulnerable, like low, you know, fiddle, like violin kind of acoustic thing. And then it just polar opposite is this song. And, and this song, you know, I think this gave us a jump, too, because, you know, a lot of, and like you said, we did have hits, but a lot of the hits were kind of like mid-tempo-y. Like, there wasn't that, like, kick-you-in-the-teeth thing in the set. And I think that song brought that to the table for us. 
And the last one before we go, even though I'm leaving. Just cause I'm leaving. Don't as of right now, this is your seventh number one in a row. Mm-hmm. As, as we record this right now, this is the one, uh, multi-week number one. Yeah. When you wrote this, how'd you feel? I was, man, this was a crazy write. So actually, one of the guys I wrote Beautiful Crazy with, Wyatt Durrett, uh, this was the first song that we wrote together. Uh, and me and him and, and a, a good friend of ours, Ray Fulcher, wrote this together. And... It was one of those things, like, I love to get into a write and just not go until I feel like it's perfect. And I feel like sometimes the Nashville environment can be, we got three hours, we're walking out with a song. I don't care if it's terrible. I don't care if it's the best song that anybody's ever written. I just want to get it done and turn it into my publisher and get on with my life. You know, which is great if that's what you want to do and I understand that and I I enjoy that sometimes too but I have to go into it with a different thing because I'm writing it as something that could potentially be a humongous part of my life forever you know that song's never going to go away it's never not going to have been a number one I'm never not going to play it every night and so I love to go in and make sure that if I'm going to record something and I'm going to put it out there for people that it's something that has the stamp of approval. And so that was a write that took probably eight hours, seven or eight hours in one day. And we were in the little, like, um, we were in like the little office rooms at um, Southern Ground in the studio. We weren't in the studio, but there's a little spot next door where there's like, you know, just a little fluorescent bulb, like offices. And Wyatt's son at, at that time was a, uh, you know, getting ready to, you know, he was getting to the age where he was going to be graduating from high school very soon. Uh, and that was his only uh, child at that time. And um, he was like, man, I want to write my son a song and let him know that I'm going to be there for him no matter what, you know, like just because he's not living at home. He doesn't, I don't want him to feel like he can't still call me or he can't still, you know, be my son or ask for help if he needs it. And so that's how that song started. Uh, and, and, uh, man, we had trouble getting through it. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to still have my, my parents in my life. And and so I haven't, you know, had to deal with that, you know, horrible day yet, but we were all, you know, very emotional, like didn't sing in the work tape, like got a little choked up. I was like, man, this is like, and I knew like, if that's happening to me, like that's going to happen to a lot of people with that song. So, um, that song is, is just, you know, it's, it's really powerful for a lot of folks. In every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they'll last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. They offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. And stay cool in short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tacova's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. Tacovas dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How do the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? 
through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the kids at St. Jude. St. Jude's been leading the way in the world's best survival rates for some of the most aggressive forms of childhood cancer. Your support means that families never get a bill from St. Jude for treatment or travel or housing or food so the families can focus on helping their child live. And that really hits home for me because I've been to St. Jude many times. I've hung out with the kids, played music for the kids. I was in the hospital a lot as a kid. Now, I didn't have cancer, but if it wasn't for people stepping up, I don't know that I would have been able to go and stay in the hospital and be taken care of. So that's why we do this, to take care of others. You can help St. Jude stop childhood cancer by becoming a partner in hope. When you do this, you'll get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. So join all the doctors and researchers, you know, and me in this fight and just text the word Bobby to 785-833. It's only six numbers, but text the word Bobby to 785-833. Dave Haywood of Lady A on how their first number one, I Run to You, in 2009, started with a poem written by Tom Douglas. That first number one led to Need You Now, which became their first crossover hit. I Run to You. You, said, you mentioned I Run, I run to, to You. Right? It was yeah. on the first record. Yeah. This, world keeps me this one tests well. still gets played a lot. Yeah, it, it still does. Feels current to me. Yeah. Even though it was from the first record. It's- and listen to those lyrics in our society today, man. It's huge. Tom Douglas. Tom Douglas sat in that chair and blew my mind. Oh, did he come here? Oh, yeah. He talked about you guys. Really? Yeah, and gathering around the piano. Yeah. Yeah, he's got a beautiful little farm and uh, our beautiful home out in, you know, Franklin or whatever, and just an old piano, and he's such a poet. He's just so artistic. I'm like, I like want to be him. I would fangirl him just even though we've written with him a dozen times, like I would fangirl him just about everything. Yeah, I've been lucky enough to sit next to some really mind blowingly awesome people that I only appreciate way later. Right. Because in the moment, and that's got to be like that with you at times too. You're doing this big, right, in, right, in right. the moment, you're just trying to get through it and not suck. Right. And then right. you look back at it and go, yeah, that was awesome. It was so cool. That was a poem, uh, which we've told that story, but our bass player jokes us about that a lot, but it was, it was a poem Tom had written uh, called I run to you. And it was just all these things that he runs from pessimists and prejudice. That's right. He told the story, right? Um, I- he was like run, he was like actually running. I think maybe the Music City Marathon, but he had all these visions of things that you run from. I mean, how deep is that? You know, like <laughs> I mean, it's like like why can't I think of that kind of stuff? He's just that kind of guy and has lived a lot of great life and and had you know his ups and downs that he writes and shares about. But yeah, that started with a poem, and we basically took his poem and kind of put music to it. And then we got into it. so writing for the next record, we had a writing appointment with Josh Keir, and we never written with him before. 
but he had written before he cheats uh, for Carrie Underwood. And uh, we went in there and wrote one song uh, first for about an hour, and it was kind of quick, and I just it didn't feel like a good song. Um, an hour? That's a quick write. It was a quick write. He had had um, he had had like half of it done. It was a song called Young Love, and it just didn't feel like us. It didn't feel like us, and we finished it, and I was like, yeah. And then it was like one of those things, Charles was like, why don't we just stay and write another song? And I was like, I mean, we were all single and had nothing to do. I was like, sounds great. I'm, I'm here. So we started writing another song, and um, Charles had some melodies on the guitar. He had just started playing guitar, actually, and learned a few chords on the acoustic. So he came up with some of the melody on the verse. Um, and then we kind of just sailed off from there. And, it, you know, we wrote it really quick. I'd say in an hour as well. Wow. Need You Now happened fast. Some, of the, some songs take like six hours or a few days or a couple writing sessions. Need You Now was quick. I Run To You was pretty quick. You finished Need You Now, and it's just a song. It's just a song. I, I didn't think it would... We sat on it for probably eight months, just sitting in our iTunes playlist. And our very last label meeting to cut with Paul Worley for that Need You Now record, which it was not obviously titled then. Um, I remember, and, and again, it's just a beautiful testament, I think Charles and his memory and his passion and, and ear for music. He was like, what about that? Remember that song we wrote with Josh Keir that day? You know, it's kind of like... It sounds just like it'd be a cool album track, you know, kind of one of those like <laughs> kind of insider songs that like people just love the vibe. You know, it's, it could probably have like a cool vibe. Um, what if we, you know, in the, the acoustic demo, I ought to play you some of that. I mean, the acoustic demo is just we're fumbling all over the melody. You know, it's like he messes up a lyric and it was just all over the place. The acoustic demo was really just it was just a voice memo from our phone. And so it sounded really rough. But we were like a couple of the people in the room, Autumn House. Mike Dungan, um, they all kind of perked up. They're like, that could be kind of cool. Why don't you guys try that? And so still, we didn't know what was happening. We got in the studio and recorded it. And I think once we got in there and Paul Worley got his hands on it, he made, so the piano part, Mike Rojas was tinkering around, you know, when you're warming up in the studio. And he started to kind of do that on the outro of the song. And we were like, man, do that on the intro. That's like a hook. That sounds like one of those big hooks. The bass line, this guy named Craig Young played that Paul Worley got. I could geek out on these guys' names for, for, for hours, but um, some of the bass playing, piano playing, guitar. I mean, me and Paul played about 25 acoustic guitars on that song. So when it gets to the chorus... There are that many guitars on the song. Acoustics. Yeah. So this is an old... Um, I, I won't go down this tangent forever. This is an old Crosby, Stills, and Nash and Young uh, trick that Paul Worley knew where you kind of... If you have like up to 20 to 30 acoustics... It makes it feel like the whole song chugs along really like well. Like a wall of sound. It's like a, a bit, wall of but... sound, right? So if you notice on the chorus, there's just this jinging, 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 straight kind of thing, and that's about 25 acoustics in the background. I mean, and Paul Worley. Can you not duplicate them though? Is it not the same? It's if not you... the same. If you want to, in today's world, you could just duplicate them, yeah. But to have different guitars with different woods and different strings from different eras and different times, all surrounding in stereo, 25 different guitars all playing and you know Paul plays a little different than I play and I play a little different and, and finger some of the chords differently with different voicings but just those little nuances on the track when Paul Worley got and, and dug in with that song I mean I gotta give it to Mike Rojas the piano stuff is amazing on that song and I gotta give it to Paul Worley man he is such a champion for great art and he takes his time with it 
And that can be hard with patience in the studio because we all want to just pump out a track in one day. But Paul will sit on it and work on it and work on it. And then two months later, you're like, wow, this thing sounds timeless. So you write it and you think it's a song. Then it's sitting there and you think, oh, this is a song. You right. cut it. Right. When do you realize that it could be special? Um, once we cut it and we started showing it to people. So we recorded it and we started playing it for you know our friends um, I mean, I wasn't married at the time. I wouldn't say my wife, but friends and people at the label and management. And they're like, man, that's like, that could be really a crazy, cool kind of first single. Um, and we're like, no, we need to have a tempo. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to have like the rock and tempo is your first song. And they were like, man, it just, this feels like a piece of art. It feels like art. And we were all about it. We just thought it would be the album track, but we were all about it. I mean, it was my, it was all of our favorite song that we had recorded for the Need You Now for that record. Dirks Bentley talked about his first number one, What Was I Thinking, which happened all the way back in 2003. He told the story of how he didn't even want this song to be his first single. He originally wanted a different song, Wish You Would Break, to be his first single, but it worked out for him, obviously, because What Was I Thinking was a massive song. Still is. I have some songs here. Oh, man. Let's play some of this stuff. Uh, how about this one right here? But that crossed my mind a little too oh, late. Just give me a, it's your first thought that comes when you hear this up here. Brett Beavers, um, great songwriter here in town. Really, without Brett, I wouldn't have anything. He um, really took me under his wing as a writer, and I learned so much from Brett about writing. And this was back when, like, when we had like the shoebox tape recorders, you know, for, and, and pen and paper. And, and he taught me how to write. One of the things he taught me was just to you know, think out loud on paper. Don't talk the whole time when you're writing songs to somebody. Just to work on something when you get an idea, maybe. But, uh, and I remember playing that for Autumn House, who was uh, an AR at a Capitol. I found her outside Exit Inn. I grabbed my guitar, ran out to her to Exit Inn. She came out of there. I sat her down on my tailgate, played her that song acoustically. I was going to the studio the next day, and she's like, cut that song. That's a great song. So you run out to some pro- a prominent person here in town and say, hey, stop, and have her watch you sing a song. She's an A&R. She still is over at Capitol Records. And uh, and I, she was in a club, I think, at Exit Inn, hearing, listening to somebody, and I texted her, or, uh, text her, I called her. And she met me outside, and I played it for her acoustically, like outside the club, and because uh, I thought it was a could be a big hit. Oddly enough, I fought really hard for that not to be the first single. So, what did you want to be the first? A single? song called "Wish It Would Break," which is more of a country thing. Um, not, you know, it's about your wishing your your car steering would break because every song plays reminds you of your girl. Wishing this picture frame would break that keeps falling down, but you you don't have the heart to throw it away because it's a picture of the two of y'all. And the last verse is about wishing your heart would break, so you just move on. It's a great song, and I wrote that with Brett. Uh, but Duncan, Mike Duncan from Capitol, was like, we're going with what was I thinking. So, and, you're, and you're glad he did. Yeah. All right, here we go. Come a little closer, baby. Kenny Chesney. Uh, makes me, when I hear that song, it makes me think of Chesney. I wrote that with Brett Beavers, uh, but Chesney said that was a song that, um, when he heard that come on the radio, that's the reason why he took me back out on the road with him again. Do you remember... Man, and you do so many. I hate when people do this to me, too. No. But... I haven't heard that. I don't play that song live anymore, so I love hearing that. It's a great song. You don't play? Oh, yeah, you talk. Yeah, yeah, it's a little slow, but it's a great song. And you say a little slow because you feel like it takes the crowd down. You know, you got to make a roller coaster out there when you're on, you got to find a way to take people on a ride, and you can only have, you got to pick your, you know, our show is so high energy, and that's, but what makes the show great is, and what makes those high energy songs work is the real moments, and, and, and that, and you can only have so many, and that song just, there's just no room for that one right now. All right, how about this one? But your wheels just turn down the road. Oh, man. It's 
one of my favorite songs. Another song I don't do the live show anymore, but uh, I do it usually to, earlier in the night in the acoustic show. But uh, when I think of that video, I think that song I did the video for it because there's a scene where I'm getting rained on by a rain machine, and there, but you can tell there's no other rain like anywhere else behind it's me. It's like just coming on you. <laughs> yeah. It's like the cartoon whenever yeah. the guy's having a bad day. But it's such a great video. There's just that one moment because, you know, if you're. You, you care so much about the work you do. You're like, ah, oh, that one scene drives me crazy. But uh, Chris Hickey did that video. It's actually one of the best videos we ever did. And uh, that song is, um, I love that song, man. It's one of my favorite songs. But um, we, I usually do it. I do a pre-show acoustic performance for some folks. And I usually am doing that song. Cause it, Who, um, I don't know. Tell me about this song. I'll oh, man. Uh, I wrote that song in Launch It Alone the same day with Brett Beavers and a guy named um, Steve Bogart. And, uh, you know, it's a great song. I would say it's one of the songs that it could say more. I mean, if I was, it, you know, it, it was a number one, but it wasn't like a, that was a lead single off an album and it just really didn't do much. Uh, people still love that song. I still do it live, but I use that song for a lot of video content of like our life on the road. But that's a song that, if I'm being totally honest and critiquing myself, just didn't say enough. You know, the verses need to be more specific and, and more biting and more personal and more um, telling of who you are or the story you're trying to tell and just not so um, interchangeable. Uh, so that, that I love that song, but I, that I was listening to, that's one thing I, every song you put out, I put out from this point on has to be like, say something really impactful or, or you know, every line has to be just perfect. And every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they'll last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. They offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. And stay cool in short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tacova's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. Tacovas.com. And don't go gently, y'all. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson, how do the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as the Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and T.J. Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hey, it's Bobby Bones. 
I just want to say thanks to everybody who has stepped up for the kids at St. Jude. St. Jude's been leading the way in the world's best survival rates for some of the most aggressive forms of childhood cancer. Your support means that families never get a bill from St. Jude for treatment or travel or housing or food so the families can focus on helping their child live. And that really hits home for me because I've been to St. Jude many times. I've hung out with the kids, played music for the kids. I was in the hospital a lot as a kid. Now, I didn't have cancer, but if it wasn't for people stepping up, I don't know that I would have been able to go and stay in the hospital and be taken care of. So that's why we do this, take care of others. You can help St. Jude stop childhood cancer by becoming a partner in hope. When you do this, you'll get this awesome new This Shirt Saves Lives shirt. So join all the doctors and researchers, you know, and me in this fight and just text the word Bobby to 785-833. It's only six numbers, but text the word Bobby to 785-833. Maddie and Tay on their first number one in 2013, which was Girl in a Country Song, and how quickly their life got very crazy. They talked about how things moved so fast, and they didn't even realize what was happening in the moment, and they thought that having a smash number one was just normal because it happened so fast. Tell me about this song. So you guys kind of come on and you do Girl in a Country Song. Oh, we have some clips. Let me play a little bit of Girl in a Country Song. You guys still like the song? Oh, yeah. I do. do. It's. I was trying to think about how many times we've played it. Like, really? it's only been four years. I mean, that's still a long time, but like, I was like, I wonder how many times. Like, I would be curious to know the number. in the thousands. With Radio Tour doing like three shows a day for a year and a half, we gotta be in that in the thousand bracket somehow. Easily I, a thousand. Yeah. I would think easily a thousand. But it, this song... So it, it was kind of a rocket ship for you guys, at least yeah. from my side of it. It was like, and I kind of just started too. You mm-hmm. know, I just moved from the pop hip hop right. world, and I come over, and I'm, you know, the guy that's, and everybody hates me because I'm so different. And they're like, ah, and I'm like, oh, good, these girls are different too. And you guys come in, and first of all, you're really good, but there was there's a novelty to this song too at the same right. time. Mm-hmm. And so, but it was just like the video was like splash, like here you are. And you're, <laughs> I, yeah, I watched that video recently, like for the first time in years, and I was like, I haven't. We watched it were either. some ballsy eighteen-year-old girls. Like, whoa! I, I guess I did not realize how big of a deal this song was until, like, going through what we've been through the past couple of years. Where I was like, you know what? Like, this is not going to happen. But if God forbid everything like just like fell apart or whatever, because I mean it has for us, you know, last year, but. If all of that happened over again, at least, like, we said something. Like, mm-hmm. we said something that was important and needed to be said, and mm-hmm. we would love to keep doing that, obviously. But um, just watching that back, I was like, gosh, like, we were fearless. How did that happen? So you, this song comes out, though, in the sense it's your first song. Yeah. Do you guys think that's normal? Like, was that normal? Was it like, this? oh, this is how it's done. We have a song or a bit where you like, whoa, this is it's kind of hard to compare it to something if you've never had something else. That was exactly. that was the issue. If I can say issue, it really wasn't an issue because it was a blessing and it got us to where we are now. But if there's anything, the con to that was just being so green and almost like, I mean, we were a baby artist. We, like you said, we had nothing to compare it to. And so our whole team, the entire time girl was rising up the charts and doing all of these milestones. It was like, they said this isn't normal. You're not. You're gonna have to work much, much harder on your next single. And they were trying to warn us, but we still didn't have that experience in our in our back mm-hmm. pocket to kind of draw from. So for us, 
in a way in at the time it was normal, which is crazy to think back and look at. Like I wish I would have had more experience so I could cherish those moments more. Yeah. And not just like like stop and smell the roses yeah. first. Like even though it sounds so cliche, like I don't remember a lot of that because it neither. was just like on to the next thing. Okay, you did the Today Show as your first full band show? Yes. Great. Okay, let's go do it again at Fountain. Like, it was just nuts. Right. And I'm like, I don't know how we did all that, but um, I'm kind of glad that we were so, like, green and, like, um, yeah, just we, we were fearless Because we would do anything. Right. Like, now we know better, like, don't play three shows in one day. You're going to wear yourself out and it's going to mess you up. Like, don't do that. Like, you know, just stuff like that. Or don't fly from Orlando to New York back to Orlando in one day and do three shows. That's not a good idea. Just just say no. Sometimes you have to say no to things. Yep. But I'm glad that it happened then. And it kind of gives us, I don't know, it gives us perspective on like, we have done Absolutely. this before. It's not going to be as easy this next go round, but... Um, we did it a little backwards. I know we did. <laughs> Sometimes I wish it was flipped, but it's okay. So that song, did it hit one? Did it, was it, did it go number yeah. one? Okay. Yeah. So it goes to number one. And what's the next single after that? Fly. Okay. So Fly comes out and doesn't go number one. It, it was a number seven, yeah. but it impacted really well, which was kind of cool. Yeah. We, we knew the the hardness of what was to come with that song too and it was a ballad and people yeah. were saying In the don't, summer. don't put out a ballad there are all these rules that, mm-hmm. but so this song comes out I loved the song by the way but oh, I'm, only, I'm only asking this backward uh, but it doesn't go number one so you've had a number one right. then you have one that doesn't go number one what do you think after that I was really happy because people were the way I measured it personally was how people were singing back when we were on stage yeah and they were singing fly and still do just as loud as girl so that to me that was a number one song like maybe not on the charts but for for our fans and for my spirit i was like we landed another one yep joe diffie talked about his debut single home going number one back in 1990 he also shared stories behind his other big hits like john deere green which oddly never went number one and is such a massive song from Joe Diffie. Here is Joe Diffie. Rest in peace, Joe. What song of yours, when you play it, gets the biggest response? John Deere Green. And you know what's funny about that? It was not a number one song. I know. Isn't that weird? It, it, and it's, you know, I talk with a lot of young artists now, and they're like, I just want that number one. I'm like, I get it. You do. But, and, and, and Keith Urban and I have talked about this, where his, a lot of his biggest songs weren't right, number no, ones. Right. Isn't that weird? I uh, you know, of course, back in those days, I mean, there were several over like four or five different charts. So I think it did go number one in one of them. I don't know which one, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, uh, it's, that's always that is a strange phenomenon. Some of your some songs that do go number one don't sell as as well, et cetera. You know, so for me, when I think about your music, like my favorite song is "Prop Me Up." Hell yeah! And that was not a number one song. Yeah, on the on the radio chart, right? I mean, when I think of Joe Diffie, this is the song for me. I know every word. I remember when it came out. I bought the CD, and I, I memorized every word so I could sing all of it. I did that and Third Rock, because Third Rock is a little harder because the words are a lot faster. Right, right. But this this is the song for me that if someone's like, what's your favorite? Matter of fact, when you came in, I was like, Joe, you got to play Prop Me Up. <laughs> right. And you did. And, and again, it peaked at number three on the radio chart. Yeah, that's weird. Right? It was a big record for me. Yeah. The video, though, for this song oh, yeah, is what, what I really remember yeah. from the song as well. Because back in the day, we used to really watch CMT for music videos. Right, right. A lot, yeah. I don't, you know what I remember about that video mostly? Filming the video? It was uh, so hot. Man, it was... And they had this these 
buckets of like sea breeze. Remember sea breeze? It was kind of like a facial cleanser, some kind of deal. <laughs> and it was like, but it had like a aromatic kind of effect. And they were dabbing all of us with that stuff, you know. But that's, I just remember it was so hot. And, and plus the dead guy. Yeah, the, he, yeah. He was so funny, man. That, I mean, that, that, that to me is those two songs. And, and I didn't, again, as I started deep diving you, I was like, man, my favorite two songs, uh, number five and a number three. Yeah. And, and you say that John Deere Green gets the, the biggest. When you do your set list, what do you start with? What's the first song? A uh, third rock from the sun. You come out high energy, yeah. huh? Uh -huh. Which this was a number one song for you. Yeah. I just would have a problem going out and doing the fast stuff quick, and then I'd be out of breath for the next three songs. <laughs> that has happened. Yeah, so I'm like, uh, yeah. Especially, I tell you where, I, where it happens to me a lot is if I'm, you know, on the Opry, for some reason it makes you nervous. And, well, if you ever get backwards on your breathing in that song, you are screwed. I mean, it's it's over, you know. Tell me about this song, Third Rock. So you you heard it. Were you like, well, what's this about? It's like what? Um, I, I always thought it was like a little mini movie, you know, which I heard a lot of songwriters say, you try to do, try, try to write a little three-minute movie, you know. But I, honestly, this was one that, I mean, even though I liked it, they there was the same publisher had played two different songs for us. And... uh and I like the other one better, actually. And uh, so, uh, you know, so anyway, I ended up getting both of them. I had to do a little wheeling and dealing. Some some guy, apparently, that I, now I can't verify this, but I was told this, uh, Garth Brooks wanted Third Rock as well. So, And how did you get Third Rock? What was the wheeling and dealing? We told them we cut both, we would do both of their songs. Do you know what the other song was? It was called, uh, 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 Something about if you're the having radio. to think, I guess it really was never a well, single. Well, it was huh? never a single. Yeah, I'm just did you put to... it on the record? Yeah, yeah, it's on there. I'm gonna run through your number ones real quick. Uh, let's do uh, home. Yeah, first your, one. your first one, 1990. Yeah, the debut single. Is that right? Mm -hmm. First song out, and mm -hmm. you go number one. My first six went number one. Apparently. Six in a row. Yeah. So, do you think after let's say two or three that you have it figured out? Uh, you know what? I've I felt like such I was. Felt a little bit like a rube. I was so naive about the whole process. I mean, even though I kind of knew, I, I kind of knew about stuff. But man, when you know, when you get a, when you when you start off like from what I did, I mean, I was on the road 300 days a year, and so I didn't really have time to think about stuff. I was busy, you know, traveling and, and doing shows and meet, doing meet and greets and all that stuff, you know. So, what brought you to Nashville? Meaning, I know the music, I know that the thought of country music. But there's always something where some, you get that push or you get kind of the itch. Well, I got laid off from my job. I had I was working at a, a foundry back in Duncan, Oklahoma, and uh, they shut the plant down, and laid us all off, and uh, you know, and I'd been singing little VFWs. And, How old were you? Oh, uh, 20, uh, 20. I moved. I moved to Nashville when I was twenty-eight. Oh, so a little bit older. Yeah, yeah. Compared to like the nineteen, twenty-two right. year olds are moving here now. Exactly. So you get laid off. Yeah, and I said, and I had been to Nashville once before with my aunt and a friend of mine. We had, we we did this little thing as a trio, and we came in, and my aunt had known somebody here in Nashville, and so anyway, we met with them, and I just fell in love with the with the city then, but I didn't have opportunity because I still had a job at the time, you know. But when I got laid off, I was like, well, you know what? I think I'm just going to try it. So I just loaded up everything I could get in this whole beat up car I had, and off I went. So at home, you know, you're you're playing around bar. Are you playing around bars at home at all? Not a lot, honestly. I, I my background was more of a, a I sang in a gospel group. Then I then I went from that to a, a bluegrass group. I played bluegrass 
for about six years with this group called Special Edition. Were you known as the guy that was doing music while working at the plant by your uh, workers? Yeah. By your co-workers? Yeah, they'd always ask me to sing. You know. Would you ever sing at work? I don't remember. Just Probably gather just, them around and be like, all right, boys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they just, they just they'd sing that song, you know, whatever. Isn't it funny how the things at the time that seemed, and this happened over my career and my life too, were really, un- I put finger quotes up, unfortunate things that happened to us turn out to really be blessings. The blessing, the biggest blessing ever, yeah. Because if I hadn't got laid off, I probably would have never left there, you know, so. When you get laid off, do you remember how that happened? Did, you, did your, your boss, your foreman come in and go, all right, you're done? No, it was just more of a, I got a phone call, I think, and they said, yeah, plant shut down. Don't go out there. <laughs> so. And then immediately do you go, all right, time to go to Nashville. Like, was it kind of in the chamber already? No, it, it, took, a, it took a couple of months, you know, of drawing unemployment. <laughs> I thought, well... You know, I, I might as well think of something. I had a good friend of mine. We used to discuss things. He wanted to. He moved to Dallas and became an accountant. And you know, and I said, I want to. He said, yeah, You know, you got to try music. You're really good at it and all that stuff. So. And when you got to town, did you feel like you were good enough to get in the mix immediately? Um, I just felt really lost, <laughs> honestly, when I first got to town because I had just gotten divorced and I missed my kids and you know and I was just in this new place and I didn't have a place to live and you know and all this kind of stuff. What'd you do? Where'd you move? I finally moved in with a with a musician, a guy named David Greer, and we we rented a, a house with no heater <laughs> in it for for about a year. And what are you doing when you first moved to Nashville? Meaning. Are you out trying to meet people, play writer rounds? Like what? What? What, what um, happens with the new artist? First, then? with me, I was trying. I needed some income, so I got a job. I knew a guy that worked at Gibson Guitars, and so they hired me out there to to work in the uh, the warehouse, shipping guitars everywhere. So, and then after that, I would just do whatever I could. I'd go to to showcases and you know just go hang out, just just to get my get out there and meet people. You know, it's so interesting to hear about because. Like, I know you as a country music legend, but I love hearing, like, the origin story of the hustle because I think so many people don't know that there's a hustle for everyone. Man, I tell you what, there was there was days, seriously, uh, you know, we didn't have anything in the house to eat. I mean, nothing. One time I had, uh, I think I had, like, I don't know, 75 cents on me, and I went by, this is funny saying ever, uh, <clears throat> I didn't know they didn't have White Castles in the, Duncan. So I saw it said a hamburger, 25 cents. I thought, oh, yeah, I've, I can, you know, so I stopped. Get a couple burgers. Yeah. So I know I, was, I said, the guy said, can I help you? I said, yeah, I'd like a hamburger, please. He goes, uh, just one? I said, yeah. I didn't know they were, you know. Tiny. <laughs> tiny. In every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that'll draw both eyes and compliments. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they'll last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. They offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. And stay cool in short-sleeve moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tacova's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. Tacovas.com. And don't go gently, y'all. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson... 
How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer shaped the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed as The Boar's Nest, Sue's place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, that's where they would spur each other and tap into something bigger and something realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Backrack as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The boar's nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. Hardy, on his first number one, one beer. That's his first number one as an artist. He had Lauren Elena and Devin Dawson on it. He also talked about his first number one as a songwriter, Up Down, which he wrote for Morgan Wallen, and how was the first time he made any money writing songs. Yeah. Uh, let me play this first. Here is One Beer. One beer turns into a lit cigarette burning into a two-beer bus. Three beers turns into five and six and a love drunk is in the back of that truck. On the record... This hits slightly different than the rest of the songs. Yeah. So whenever this was decided to go to, you know, radio, conventional radio, yeah. was someone really pushing that and it was like, wow, we can't believe we're going to do this? Or was that kind of the consensus to go with that song? Yeah, it was just the internet. Just, um, it was data of... It stood, I mean, oddly enough too, it was on Hickstape. It wasn't even originally on my, um, my uh, a rock, my actual record. It was a Hickstape song and... Of all the songs we knew, we were probably going to do a single from Hicks Tape, and uh, Seth England kept saying, like, dude, it's going to be one beer you just watch. And I was like, okay. And uh, sure enough, it, I mean, exponentially beat everything else on the record. And and I've always been, uh, the, I say always, I've only been doing this a couple of years, but, like, I, anything that I cut, I, I would be willing to do to have as a single. So whatever that they, you know, say is, is blowing up on, you know, whatever internet any app or whatever uh i'm good to go with so i just said let's let's do it i know it's different but go for it there's only ever been one other person say that in that way to me when when doing these long form conversations and he said you know what i write almost all my stuff not all of it he's like i'll take a couple songs that that i don't write because i'm a songwriter and i appreciate songwriters and he said but if i cut it i just go it's good enough to put out. So you decide, because I wouldn't have cut it if I didn't think it was good. Yeah. And that other, that was Chris Ableton. Yeah, wow. He, who goes, I cut it. I got to believe in it. So, yeah. w- so label, you take it and do what you're good at, because I already did what I'm good at. Yeah. That's how I feel. Pretty much exactly the same. I'm cool with anything. I, and I know there's kind of a whole spectrum of, of sonically of, of stuff that I put out, but I'm cool with anything going out there. Your first money-making song was Up Down? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Was that the first song that ever got cut? No. My first cut was, uh, but that was, actually, so, I, so two cuts. Up Down was on my old deal. Um, I Should Go to Church Sometime by Tyler Farr. Oh, yeah. It was my first I, cut, and it was my first single, and it died like in the 60s. I something. remember it, yeah. 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 I, but still exciting to get that first single. When you get the call and they go, hey, it's a single, are you pumped? Yeah. Oh, dude, yeah. I mean, I thought I was going to be rich. <laughs> uh, not that that's why I do it, but... Um, <clears throat> Yeah, I was, 
Yeah, I mean that's yeah, it's a it's a huge milestone, and and, and a, a, you know just a confidence booster, and it's like you are doing this, and somebody legitimate cut your song, and yeah, it's it was it was all the wind and the sails I think that I needed, and then after that everything just kind of started happening, which is everybody says like you get one and you get X amount or whatever, and I've seen that happen with a ton of my friends too. It's just funny how that works. So as much wind gets put in your sails when they say hey it's going to be a single, did as much get taken out? When it didn't hit? Yes, but up, down, it kind of cross-faded with that. So I had a little hope there. Um, But around the time it died was when Morgan cut it. So we just still didn't know, and he had only had the way I talk. Um, So it's hard to, you know, really gauge that. But, um, yeah, it it was a good – it was enough cross-fade for me to not, like, be super down and think maybe that was my shot. There had to be two – a bit of excitement whenever it's not only Morgan, who who at the time was an unknown artist on a label sure. who <laughs> had no history at all, not yeah. even of success or not success, but no history. Big Loud had no history. Uh-uh. But then when FGL gets on the song, yeah. you got to go, oh man, I got another bullet for the gun inside of this song. Yeah, it was a huge um, booster for him. And that was kind of a sigh of relief. But for you, I'm saying, like to write a song, you know if FGL's on the song, it's not going to die at 60. No. Uh yeah, and that was that was kind of the okay. This is going to be a hit. There's no way it's not going to be a hit, and uh, that was definitely a huge thing for all of us. That was all me, Brad Clawson, and CJ Solar. It was our first, really, a few of our first cut, or maybe mine and somebody else's like first or second cut, and uh, our first hit together too. So it was good for all of us. Let me play this. Here is Morgan Wallen up down. Turn it up, down, up, down, up, down. We just holding it. You mentioned Brad Clawson. So when I heard about you, the songwriter, about to start turning into you, the artist, it was from Nicole Gallion, who's a friend. Yeah. And she was like, yeah, Hardy's he's going to try to be an artist. Yeah. And, and I didn't know who you were. I just... She, yeah, nobody she, did. She, she was talking about the songs you'd written, and she yeah. was like, I don't know why I'd try that. Yeah. You know, because a lot of songwriters in town have either tried and it was unsuccessful, not a good experience, or they just don't want to do it. Yeah. You, know, you see all their friends do it, and they're like, I don't know about that. You never have someone who's a songwriter who hits it big for a couple songs and goes, you know what, I'm good. I don't want to do it. It's, uh-uh. it's never that way. So, you know, if you're with a songwriter, mostly they're, they're like, I don't know, I want to live the artist's lifestyle. Yeah. But for you, was that always kind of the, the, the goal? on the? No. No. It was not. It, when I was in college, like I kind of wanted to, and then I signed a pub deal, and I was just like, this is awesome, and all I got to do is write a song every day, and... and uh no, I had I had I had reached the point where I had zero intentions of of being an artist or at least like signing a record deal and like doing the thing. I might have had aspirations to put music out or something, but no, I had no I had no plans to to do it. Tracy Lawrence talks about his debut single Sticks and Stones going number 1 in 1991, but how one of his most famous songs, Pay Me a Birmingham, never went number 1. 1991 here is Sticks and Stones. These sticks and stones ain't all that makes So when this song starts to get some traction, you're a brand new artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, is the record label like, we knew it. We knew you were our guy. Like, are you treated differently? Rick Blackburn didn't believe in that song. Elroy Kahanick, who found me up in Daysville, Kentucky, believed in that song. He literally got in his car 
he was the head of promotions at Atlantic, and he would drive all over the place and bring PDs out and stick them in the car in the parking lot and make them listen to it. Elric Connick made that a hit. He, he shoved it down everybody's throat. But it was so different when it came on the radio. There was nothing else that was like it. And that was the thing that that change in musical style, when I was trying to figure out in the, the summer of 90, when I was living in Louisiana, what do I need to do? Because you got to think about all the stuff that would happen that happened in '89. You had Alan Jackson that came out, Mark Chestnut, Vince Gill, uh, 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 Garth Brooks. It's all this new music, this new sound that was happening, and it was exciting back then. And, and I was like, I've got to go be a part of that. I've got to be go be a part of it now. So when I I got the shot to cut my record, and James Stroud and I were put together, and all the wheels started turning on that kind of stuff. I mean, James had cut that first record on Clint Black, so I was with part of that new sound that was making that change in country music. That's when that young country slogan, that whole thing just exploded out of Nashville. It was it was awesome time. Did you get any pushback since your sound was different and every kind of different generation gets a pushback? Was there any there? You know, I never felt it personally toward me. And I know a lot of the, the older guys. I heard the Waylands and the, the Haggards grumbling underneath the surface, you know, that they weren't getting airplay on the radio anymore. And there was a, there was not, it was not a, there's not a love, lot of love toward us from those guys early on. I think it kind of eased up as time went on. But the one person that I never felt that from was George Jones. Never. Uh, and, you know, George and Nancy, they found a way to embrace that change. And so they just they gathered us all up and made us part of I Don't Need No Rocking Chair and all that stuff. And he, I went on tour with Jones. So it was it was it was a great time, but George, um, they they just approached it from a different perspective. But yeah, there was there was some pushback. But you know, these guys have been getting airplay for thirty plus years, and then all of a sudden, all these young kids are coming in town, and the music's changed and taken over, and they're not getting airplay anymore. They're they're a little bit bitter at times. It's funny you bring up. I don't need your rocking chair. I mean, that to me, I can remember singing that, and I George Jones was a bit before me. As I got yeah. older, I started to listen to more George Jones. Yeah because I love the format and wanted to learn as much about country music as I could. Yeah. But when that song came out, I remember all you guys being on that song. Yeah. I mean, it was every country superstar I could have ever imagined on that song with him. And, would, and the ones of us that weren't on it, I didn't get to sing on the record, but I got to do it every night at the concert. Really? Yeah. There, there were so many. I, I was looking at um, the CMAs, or that song was nominated for a CMA. Yeah. And it was just like 17 people on that song. It was and I massive. thought it was so cool because every, all those people loved George Jones and respected George Jones. They did. But you know what? Uh, how could you not respect George? Look at look at what he had been through. He lived a life that, <laughs> I mean, he he survived himself and uh, and and lived to a place where he was able to to still be relevant in a time where the music business was changing all around him. You got to have a lot of respect for that. That first number one was in 1991. Now, were there singles that happened after that that did not hit as hard? Sticks and stones hit hard. Uh, the couple of big ones off that record, so Sticks and Stones. The four off that album were Sticks and Stones, Today's Lonely Fool, Running Behind, that were number ones. And then Somebody Paints the Wall was a top five. So we had three number ones and a top five. Now, as we progressed into Alibis, which was my second release, uh, we had four number ones off of it. But there was some friction there because I was wanting to grow. By this time, Indian Outlaw had popped, and I was wanting to do a heavier guitar sound. And James and I were on board that, James Stroud, who produced the album. So we were we were pushing things. Alibis was a massive hit. When I remember being in the studio, we cut uh, "Can't Break It to My Heart," which was a single, and uh, uh, that track was originally cut with a screaming rock and roll guitar on it. 
And I thought the head of the label was going to blow his top. And he <laughs> lost his mind, made us go back in and put a fiddle solo on it. There's too much rock and roll guitar. They couldn't stand it. Another song that was the number two airplay song of the year called Can't Break It to My Heart that I was a co-writer on, I thought he was going to drop me off the label because he told me not to cut it, and I cut it anyway. <laughs> it's wild to hear those stories about songs that I just associate being so freaking country. Yeah. I mean, now I look at those, and I'll play some alibis here. Uh, 1993, here's alibis. And here is Can't Break It to My Heart, where this is as country as I could, oh. as country of a song can be. Absolutely. It, he hated this song. Hated it. Hated everything about it. Why? I have no idea. Because he told me not to do it, and I did it anyway. And that's why? Yeah, it wasn't so much <laughs> He sonically. didn't really like it, but, you know, there's, it, you know, I always say, people ask, how, you know, when you get in the music business, when can you push? How do you know when to push? When you get momentum, you better push because if you don't, you'll never get it. When you get an opportunity to take advantage of a situation or you will never have any creative control your whole life. And I took advantage of the opportunity and, and I pushed back a little bit and, and I don't think they knew quite what to do with that. And I had managers that stood behind me too. I wasn't out there by myself. My manager fought the fight for me. It's funny, when I was walking over here, I was, I was like, ah, oh, Tracy's over. Come over, talk to you. And I started in my head as I was walking in the front door, I just started going... A pay me a Burmy. It's like I just think about you, and that's the song that comes to my mind when I think about you. It's what an iconic song, wasn't it? It was. It was a massive record. You know, I've been blessed with a lot of number ones in the business. That one only got top five. You know, which we were talking about before you got here, because I'm always fascinated by songs that become an artist's. You know, one of your career songs. Yeah. And it doesn't matter if it was number one now because everybody knows it and associates it with you. But that wasn't a number one song. Do you no. remember what beat it out? I don't remember. You know, it was uh, uh, I, I, it was the first thing that we had released when I moved over to DreamWorks from Warner Brothers. So there was there was a political shuffle that had happened. That whole time frame, that album was actually cut on Warner Brothers. And uh, 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 James Stroud was running DreamWorks at the time. Scott Borchetta was the head of promotion. So we had our own deal worked out. And we couldn't get Warner Brothers to release us. They wouldn't get the paperwork done. We waited and waited and waited. We are trying to be patient and getting all our T's crossed and I's dotted and all that stuff. And then, lo and behold, if Ken Mellons doesn't drop a single, the same song. And uh, then the lawyers got involved. Then it's like, okay, we're done. We've been waiting to release a single. And here, here's somebody else has got their hands on it. So we, we came and got aggressive. And it, uh, I think there was... Uh, just some some things going on around DreamWorks at the time, and it, it was probably Toby that was ahead of us that kept us from going in. But they uh, they just felt like it was time to let it go and move on. I, but it but it was a massive hit, man. That thing impacted hard. Yeah, I was going to ask: Is it massive because it's lasted, or was it massive then? And for some reason, you're like, why can't we get this to number one? Because I'm feeling it when I'm playing shows. You know. Uh, it was massive because it was massive. It, it really, and I, you know. All number ones aren't aren't that way. I've had a lot of them that you know they they manipulated the numbers. They went in on a dying breath. Some things fell out of the top. Whatever the reasons were, uh, I don't think I don't think the longevity of the song needs to be determined by how far it went up on the charts. And there's there's a there's a you know a marquee to all that stuff too. But I, I think the longevity of it speaks for itself. I mean, it's it's one of those songs that just connected with people. You know, Hank, I don't think Hank Jr. had a number one song for years and years. All that early stuff that was so massive for him, I mean, most of those were just top tens, but they impacted. They left a, they left an indelible mark in people's mind. I remember, and I didn't know at the time, as a kid listening to that song, I didn't know what a key change was. It was only later in my life when I learned 
a bit about music to understand what a keychain was, was and how hard it was to do. But there's a keychain in Paint Me a Birmingham that you do. Yes. That when listening back to it, I still get chill bumps. Because it's like it goes to a next level the when power you do that. Of yeah. It steps up. And what we do live, I closed the show with it. I've been closing the show with it for a long time. So we built this big power pop guitar solo into it that just really elevates it. And when you hit that mod, it just whoa. You know, I think one of the things that made that record so special too is nobody really knew what a Birmingham was. They thought, you know, you had people that thought I was talking about the city that I'd left my love in Birmingham. You had people thought about, you know, it's a uh, uh, um whatever the scenario was but what i found out later on maybe i didn't really even know what it was until later on but the song is actually written about a house called a birmingham it's a style of house and we've talked about that in the past before so i think the being able to interpret that song and be something that anybody wanted it to be made was one of the things that made it so special it wasn't locked into just being what it was you can interpret it many different ways which a lot of great songs have that absolutely because what makes it great is so many people can relate, and sometimes so many people find their own relationship with the song. And I think that's what this song does. Like, everyone finds their relationship with this song. Absolutely. And they make it fit their own mental picture mm -hmm. of what that is. Another song that, that was like that for me uh, was Texas Tornado. Mm. And out of all the things that I've had, I think Texas Tornado impacted the young kids more than anything else that I ever did. And And the only thing that I can correlate that to is... How many times as a kid did your mother say, your room looks like a tornado hit it? So I think that it had that perception to young kids, and they, were, they, they found a way to relate to it on a different level because I never saw that, that, that correlation when I cut that song either. Jody Messina on when she finally landed her first number one in 1998 with Bye Bye, two years after her debut single, Heads Carolina, Tells California, peaked at only number two, and it would have been a number one, but My Maria was ahead of it. That's a tough one to beat. But here you go, Jody Messina. Your first number one, 1998. Here is Bye Bye. So was this your first single or was it your first single that went number one? Or did you have one before this that didn't? Morgan's going to love this one. One of my teammates. Um, my first single was Heads Carolina, Tales California. Which and is that which is bizarre. My it, Maria. <laughs> and I, I was going to get around my Maria. I was going to talk about that. That's the wildest song to never go number one. Heads Carolina tells California. Like I can't. It can't, did on some charts, like the smaller charts, but Billboard and I think R and R, it sat behind my Maria forever. That is just some bad luck. That two of the biggest country songs of all time are on the <laughs> chart at the exact same time. They just want to kick Ronnie and kicks in the shin and be like, "Hey guys, come on, let me hop up there a spot." They were my first major tour, so no. <laughs> I learned a lot from them, touring with them, and they were just so kind to me, and their crew was kind to me, and they, they gave everybody the speech, you know, when we first started, like, whatever whatever they need, you know, just see to it that they have it, take care of them, and we were just spoiled rotten on their tour, so no, but <laughs> we did have bad luck, or not bad luck, but we did have that same luck again with Lesson and Leaving. And that song, fast forward a few years after that. <laughs> who sat at number one that time? Lone <sighs> Star. Oh, really? Baby, I'm amazed. amazed. Wow. Eight weeks. Eight weeks we were at number one and two. That's crazy. <laughs> so let me rewind for a second. So Heads Carolina Tells California, um, which we still play on our mm -hmm. show, because, I mean, that song just transcends every form of music, every form of, it, it doesn't matter. It's such a good song that... 
Thank you. Was that your first ever single? And if so, it must have felt like a rocket ship. Well, here's the deal. We were done with the album. And Tim Nichols, who's one of the writers on there, had called me and said, because he saw me at a showcase and he's seen me around town singing. And um, he called me and said, hey, I wrote this song. And I was wondering if you would listen to it. I'm like, dude, we're done. We're done with the record, finally. And he's like, please let me just leave it in your mailbox. Listen to it and then let me know what you think. And so he did. He left it in the mailbox. And I was like, man, this song is really catchy. I love the chorus. I'm not crazy about the opening two lines, but I'm going to play it for my producers. And I played it for my producers. And they're like, which is Byron Gallimore and Tim McGraw. And they were like, oh, man, we got to cut this. And I was like, yeah, but I don't like the first couple of lines. And so they're like, well, ask him to change it. And I was like, okay. So they did. The only studio time that was available then was on the 4th of July. So we actually cut it the 4th of July before it was released. And so <laughs> as you cut it, were you already, this is a single, like in your mind, were you cutting it to be a single or were you cutting it just to get it on the record and see what would happen? We are cutting it to get it on the record. And then as soon as we passed the record in, as soon as we passed it in, they're like, okay, this would be the first single. Do you remember what the lines were that were changed? We should have known it the day they cut that paper mill down. Or shut the paper mill down, sorry. There'd be no future for us no more in our little town. I've got people in Austin. Ain't your daddy still in Des Moines? And I was like, oh, and can we change Austin to Boston? Because <laughs> I really do have people in Boston. So, yeah. <laughs> so that, that song peaks at two. And then you, okay, so then Bye Bye comes out. <laughs> And did you mm -hmm. feel like a little bit, because Bye Bye again, such a great song. Did you feel like a little bit that the chart, the chart people felt like, okay, we need to make, because she got such a raw deal with Heads Carolina, Tells California, we need to make sure there's nothing else <laughs> in the way with this one. I don't think they were aware. <laughs> I think it was just the song itself. Um, I saw, uh, they pitched, EMI pitched it to me. It was a Phil Vassar song. And they, um, uh, I loved it as soon as we heard it. And so, and that one had a different first line, too. The, the opening line for that was, uh, Girl, you sure look pretty there standing in the doorway in the sunset light. And, and when I sing it, it's like, Boy, you sure look good there standing in the doorway. And I remember when, before we cut it, Phil Vash was like, It's not a song for a girl. It's a guy's song. And so <laughs> he still says that today. He's like, That's not a girl's song. That was written for a guy. <laughs> so, um, but we, we love each other. But he's, yeah, we got... Bye bye. That came out, and, uh, then, and then I'm, I'm all right. right. Came out. Yeah, same year. Thanks for listening to episode 361 of the Bobbycast. Famous firsts. Now go out and write your own number one song. And since I inspired you, give me five percent publishing, or just make sure that you subscribe to the Bobbycast wherever you're listening. Rate it five stars, please. And if you're looking for more podcasts, I want to suggest two of them: 25 Whistles. It is our football podcast, or Movie Mike's Movie Podcast. If you love movies. We're back next week with a brand new episode. Thank you, guys. This, this episode was awesome. Good job, Mike. This Thank was a great, you. great episode. Uh, there you go. Thank you. See you next time. In every pair of Tacova's boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tacova's boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tacovas.com. That's T E C O V A S.com. 
And don't go gently, y'all. This is the year to stop overpaying for your family plan. So choose a straight talk wireless family plan. Unlimited data, talk, and text on a reliable 5G network. And you can get a new line starting at $25 per line per month for four lines, plus taxes and fees and no contracts. That's good decision making. Available at Walmart and on straighttalk.com. Family plan discount with four lines, all on the silver unlimited plan. Not combinable with auto pay discount. In times of traffic, your data may be temporarily slower than other traffic. Video streams at up to 480p. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.